The Oregon country, big and bountiful. It has been claimed by both the United States and England as their territory. In 1818, England and the United States signed an agreement that was known as the Treaty of Joint Occupation. According to the provisions of the treaty, it stated that the subjects of both the United States and England could settle in the territory. The treaty was to last for 10 years, but it worked so successfully that in 1827 it was renewed for an indefinite period of time. There was one other stipulation also. It said that the treaty could be terminated by either party on a six months notice. During the period of time from 1807 to 1840, the mountain man marked the trails that led to the far west, all the way to the northwest coast of America, westward of the Stony Mountains. But more was needed to set the tide of people rolling toward the Pacific. Throughout the history of the American frontier, mass migrations occurred only when people were attracted by great dreams of a better way of life. So, when people are unhappy at home and assured of a greater prosperity ahead, they will then be willing to risk the uncertainties of new lands that lie ahead. What then attracted the people of the United States to the West Coast in the 1840s? Since the United States was an agricultural nation at this time in history, it meant that men would be looking for land. And what man wouldn't be attracted to the tales of the lush Willamette Valley in Oregon as a place to settle down and grow things? The tales of the Oregon country were first spread by the mountain men and trappers who lived in that area. They took the news eastward to Missouri and spread the word. Besides the mountain men, there were also visionaries like Hall Jackson Kelly. Kelly was an avid champion of the Pacific Northwest ever since reading the reports of the Lewis and Clark expedition. In 1828, Kelly started writing a book on the Oregon country. It was published in 1830. In his book, he told his readers that they could find a bounty of land and beautiful valleys out west. These valleys in the Oregon country, he said, were nourished by a rich soil and a warm climate that would accommodate the interest of any farmer. Although Kelly was one of the first to propagandize the benefits of the Oregon country, the time was not yet ripe for a movement west by the American people. During this early part of the 1830s, people were content to stay where they were. Why move? Yet, when the time comes and people become discontented, Kelly's book will inspire them to move to Oregon. 
Kelly was one of the first to stimulate the minds of people to move to Oregon, but the persons most responsible for stimulating the westward movement were the missionaries who went west to save the Indians and convert them to Christianity. The most renowned of these missionaries was Jason Lee, an earnest Presbyterian. Jason Lee never won fame as an apostle of Christianity, for he was a failure as a missionary to win converts. Nevertheless, he did become famous in American history. His main contribution was that he and other missionaries kept the spark of interest in the Oregon country alive. For when they returned from the virgin wilderness, they brought with them tales of that lush, lush territory. In 1837, there was a financial panic in the United States. This, coupled with the fact that farmers were having a hard time getting prime land, created the conditions that were needed to start people moving. By 1840, the tales and the stories of the missionaries led people to believe that now was the time to leave the East and head West. Couple all the miseries of the East together with the dreams of what the Oregon country could give you, and you have something called Oregon fever. Oregon fever was the desire to head West and get to Oregon. Why, the land was frost-free, and what yields these giant farms could bring. Wheat could be planted in January, and corn and beans in April, thus assuring the newcomer of a first year's crop. The rain seldom fell, and this blessing kept sunny skies on the vegetation which would grow and grow. The heavy night dews provided all the moisture necessary to grow things. The soil was so rich that wheat grew as tall as a man with each stalk sprouting seven kernels. Oats reared eight feet high, clover shot upward to a height of five feet and massed so tightly that a man could scarcely force his way through a field. Beets were harvested when they were three feet in circumference and turnips were harvested when they were five feet in circumference. Yes, sirree, Bob, let's get going. And so Oregon fever hit the country. As we look back on the westward movement then, we can say that one of the chief causes that started the great migration west was the hunger that existed for land. So long as good land was ahead, nothing could hold back the American frontiersmen. Neither distance, hardship, nor international boundaries could stop him. If there ever was an irresistible force in history, it was the pioneer who learned that fertile fields to the west awaited his plow. Before the pioneer headed west, however, he had to make great preparations. Wagons had to be outfitted. Oxen or draft animals had to be purchased to pull the wagons. 
one had to consider whether or not he wanted to take cattle along. Not only would they provide milk and food along the trail, but they could be sold in the Willamette Valley in Oregon at a good price. Bacon had to be packed in strong bags. The flour and sugar would have to be stored in double sacks to keep out moisture. Once a pioneer had decided to go, each of the following steps would be taken, but only after weighty consultation with others who were making similar preparations for the trip. After thumbing through the pages of one of the many guidebooks that had been written by someone who had made the trip in earlier years, the pioneer would read warnings that loads of more than one ton could not be taken across the mountains. And at the same time, the books cautioned travelers against buying supplies out west because of the high cost. With the preparations completed, the emigrants came straggling from all parts of the country to Independence, Missouri. Arriving in Independence, Missouri in late April or early May, they would make their last purchases. From Independence, Missouri, they would move 30 miles west to a place called Elm Grove. Here at Elm Grove, the wagon train would rendezvous. The pioneers realized that a tedious journey like this with constant tensions of the trail would bring out the worst in the human character. In every wagon train, the pioneers created their own lawmaking and law enforcing machinery before they started the trip. They selected leaders and then they drew up a simple body of laws which was suited to their group. Every male, 16 years or over, voted. Their captain was elected by popular ballot. A council of ten was chosen to settle disputes and to try offenders for any acts that were contrary to good order or military discipline. New officers could be chosen if those first elected proved unsatisfactory. With the rules and organization out of the way, the wagon train now began to pull away. They were in lush prairie country, and eight miles from Elm Grove, a lone sign erected on the treeless plain pointed the way west. The sign simply said, Road to Oregon. Here, soft breezes set the glistening grass dancing. On and on they pushed until the little group emerged at the Platte River, which was some 316 miles from Independence, Missouri. The trail ran along the south bank of the river for some 100 miles, climbing steadily all the while. As they plodded on day after day, they sometimes covered 10, sometimes 15, and occasionally between sunrise and sunset, they covered as many as 20 miles. As they moved on, the routine of trail life gradually became second nature to man and beast alike. 
the day began when the sun's rays reddened the night skies. Then shouts of the night guards brought sleepy-eyed men and women pouring from their tents and wagon. Then the preparations for breakfast got underway. A fire of buffalo chips was built over which the morning meal was cooked. A buffalo chip is dried buffalo manure. This had to be used to make the fires because there were no trees on the prairies from which to get wood. After breakfast, the pasturing animals were brought in, the tents were struck, blankets were tucked away, oxen and horses were yoked, and the columns were formed. At about 7 a.m., a clear note from a bugle signaled the start and the creaking wagons were set in motion. As the wagons headed west, the guide of the train ranged far ahead, keeping an eye out for any possible trouble, whether it be Indian or weather. Far behind him came the mile-long wagon trains. So that a person did not have to continually eat the dust given off by the wagons in front of him, his position in the wagon train was changed daily. The wagoneers walked beside their teams, flicking their whips, while their wives and children, scattered to either side of the wagon train, picked wildflowers or simply romped. At the rear of the train, a herd of spare horses trotted along, and they were followed by the cattle. As they marched on, they would come to streams, and as they did, they would find flags planted by the guide, which would indicate the best spot for fording that stream. Around midday, the signal came for what was called nooning. It was time for the noonday lunch. The animals were left in their yokes while a light meal was eaten. The columns then moved on at the next blast of a bugle. By now, most everyone was tired, Women and children crawled into the wagons to sleep. Drivers nodded as they walked, and even the oxen seemed to doze as they were plodding along. As night began to fall, they would reach a spot where the guide had marked out a large circle on the ground. Each driver would guide his team along these marks. They formed a circular barricade of wagons which made them safe from any possible Indian attacks. For a time, all was a bustle as the Teamsters drove their animals out to graze. The children, they gathered the buffalo chips for the fire, while the women set about preparing the evening meal of slabs of meat, fresh-baked bread, and black coffee. Once comfortably filled by the meal, the men settled back to spin yarns about the campfire while the children romped and the young couples courted. The Council of Ten usually met, for rare was the day when no business was transacted. As darkness settled, the tired travelers crawled into their blankets. The guards took their posts and the quiet of the black prairie night descended over the entire wagon train. 
save for the yowl in the night by some animal or the sounds of crickets lullabying the pioneers to sleep, all was quiet. Day after day, the same monotonous thing took place, with some occasional variations. Now and then, the women would talk the guide into allowing the caravan to stop for a day, or even two days, while they did their washing. This was always a difficult task, as the guides, who were usually some old mountain men, despised cleanliness as much as they did godliness. While the women were busying themselves, the men spent the time hunting or drying meat while the children splashed away the grime of the trail in a clear blue stream. Occasionally, the march was halted under less pleasant circumstances. Thunderstorms might burst upon them with such fury that tents would be blown away, wagons would be overturned, and the trail would vanish under a wash of water that was near mouth deep. On other occasions, the caravan might be stopped by a stampeding buffalo herd. The buffalo would sweep down upon them with the fury of an avalanche. The captains of the train, when they sighted the running beast, would sometimes set fire to the prairie grass in an effort to turn the buffalo from the wagon trains. Furthermore, the men of the wagon train would sometimes be called upon to shoot the lead animals in the hopes of stopping the stampede. At other times, the traveler's own animals might stampede at the slightest excuse. The animals would rush madly across the plains in all directions while the drivers did their best to stay with the wagons until the beasts were exhausted. Indeed, Life along the trail was not all monotony. There were also sights to behold on this trip. As the wagon trains made their way along the Platte River, the pioneers would tick off the landmarks one by one. First there was the crossing of the South Platte River. Then, many miles up the way, there was the masonry-like formations of courthouse rock. Further still, the 40-foot spires of chimney rock, which rose abruptly from the flat plain and could be seen for days as the wagons approached. Next came the lofty spires and spacious domes of the eroded rock formation known as Scott's Bluff. Then they crossed the Laramie River, which at this time of year was so high that one person of the party would have to swim the raging river with a rope in his teeth. The wagons then were hauled across like so many ferry boats with large logs tied to either side of the wagon to keep them afloat. Just beyond the Laramie River, the travelers could see the 15-foot adobe walls of Fort Laramie, and it would be here that they would stop and rest for several days. Here the women washed and the men swapped yarns with the traders that had gathered at the fort. During the evenings, social festivities like a good stomp or dance would take place. 
After the welcomed rest at Fort Laramie, the wagon train again headed westward. But from here it was an uphill struggle. The trail, which ran along the North Platte River, climbed upward into the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Once they had crossed the North Platte River, the group found themselves in a desolate country where the few water holes they did find were so tainted with salt that not even the animals would drink the water. Finally, after many days, they saw the mountains, snow-capped and shining, in clear view. Now the trail climbed steeply along the rushing Sweetwater River, so named because it was the first good water they had tasted in many days of travel. Following this rushing Sweetwater River, they moved toward a place called Independence Rock, which was 838 miles from where they had started in Independence, Missouri. Here the group paused for a day's rest, and, as was the custom, the pioneers wrote their names in the soft stone of Independence Rock. Even today, the names on Independence Rock can still be seen, a little weathered, but still there. Just beyond here, the group, still climbing steeply, followed the Sweetwater River through the narrow canyon called Devil's Gate. Here the walls rose perpendicularly for 300 feet. Once through Devil's Gate, they moved over the Rocky Mountains through a place called South Pass. It was one of the only passes through the Rocky Mountains over which a wagon could traverse. The crossing through South Pass was looked forward to by the people of the wagon train with great expectation. They had in mind a trail that would hug the high ridges of the mountains and then head down the other side. But when they got there, they found out that it was a very wide pass and not at all dangerous. One person said, if you didn't know it was a mountain pass, you would think it was just another place. Now they began to notice that the streams were trickling westward to where the Pacific Ocean must be. They had crossed the Continental Divide. From here the trail ran downhill, but their hardships were far from over. Now they were starting to go through desolate, waterless wastelands. To escape the sun's glaring rays, they would travel at night until they reached the Green River. From here they could turn south. This would take them to Fort Bridger. These forts of which we have been speaking were not forts manned by United States soldiers. They were trading forts manned by the early mountain men who lived in this area. Next, the wagon train would swing north to the Bear River. Here the grass and water was plentiful. As they moved on, travelers marveled at the bubbling pools of water known as Soda Springs. And not only a half mile farther, they marveled anew at the sight of Steamboat Springs. Here hot water spurted from the cone-shaped rocks every 15 seconds. And then, 
Just beyond that was Fort Hall, 1,288 miles from Independence, Missouri. And here again, they took a few days to rest. Fort Hall was nestled against the Snake River in a grassy valley. They were about three-fourths of the way through their journey, but the worst was yet to come. Now the wagon train rumbled along the south bank of the Snake River through the wild, rocky, barren wilderness. The going got rougher as they jolted over rocks that cut the oxen's feet, and the trail was soon splashed red with blood. At other times they twisted along the high mountainside so steep that files of men marched beside each wagon to keep it from overturning. Then, too, there were times when the wheels sank hub-deep in sand until double-teaming was necessary to get the wagons through. On and on they labored, covering only a few miles each day while the burning sun sapped the energy of man and beast alike. Then appeared unto them what had to be a mirage. As they looked down many hundreds of feet below them, they saw the green surface of the Grand Ronde. It was a beautiful valley, six miles wide, and surrounded by snow-clad peaks on each side. But as pretty a sight as it was, the descent over the trail was sliding and uncomfortable. Once at the bottom of the valley, the wagon train rested. The animals fed on the abundant grass. Women washed travel-stained clothes. And the men lulled in the unaccustomed shade as they listened to the songs of meadowlarks. When well refreshed, they now assaulted the last barrier, the Blue Mountains. These lofty peaks seemed to be a resting place for the clouds. The wagon train now struggled upward along the rocky canyon and over a road too horrible to describe. Finally, they went over the high mountains, double-teaming once again. Then they finally emerged on a plateau that sloped gradually downhill to the arid plains of eastern Oregon. Pushing on, they finally came to the Dalles. This is a narrow place on the Columbia River. Here, the water of the Columbia River boils and foams as it cuts its way through the Cascade Mountains. At this point of the journey, many people without stock rebuilt their wagons into boats. Then they floated down the Columbia River to Fort Vancouver. It was the end of the trail for those who came seeking a dream. For those who had stock, they drove it overland along a mountain trail into the Willamette Valley. The journey was over. It had lasted about three months and indeed was an adventure never to be forgotten. For immigrants kept diaries and even wrote books on the subject, all of which made it possible for the historian to describe the trail of adventure for you. 
And as for these pioneers of the 1840s, their migration was the fulfillment of manifest destiny. For from these insistent peoples would come the settlements that would eventually carry with them the boundaries of the United States to the Pacific Ocean.